0: But we will fly. (laughs) Scripture says we will meet him in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. And that's exciting. I want to talk to you about something else exciting tonight. If you have Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 1. And then uh, we're going to bounce through Ephesians a couple places. But I want to talk about something that I didn't understand uh, as a Christian for 17 years. Uh, I was uh, struggling with some sin problems, I became a Christian when I was 20. And for 17 years after that, I was struggling with several different kinds of sin problems, but I knew a lot of doctrine. I look back now and I realize I didn't know near as much as I thought I knew back then, but um, I had a doctor of the Holy Spirit. And I knew that the Holy Spirit came and lived in me. I knew that when I was baptized the The Spirit was to be given to me. Um, And it was more like the Holy Spirit moved into the front room of my house, but I was in the back rooms. And I never really met Him. And um, I want to ask you to do an exercise just real quick. Even if you're eating, you can do this exercise. You can eat by Braille. Uh, I want you to just close your eyes for a minute and vision in your mind, Jesus, and Jesus is walking. Well, this was done for me one time, and I was asked, "What do, what is Jesus doing?" I had this picture of a Jewish man with forelocks, with a beard. I had studied about the appearances of the Jews back at that time. And this Jewish man was walking by me in the vision and then in, in my sight, you know, in my mind, And then our teacher said, now I want you to see Jesus turning toward you. What does he do? And you can open them now if you want to. But what happened to me was Jesus came to me. And I started to fall on on my knees in front of him in my thinking. And he just grabbed me and hugged me. And uh, it was like, for the first time in my life, I was 37 years old, almost 38, it was uh, just before my birthday, for the first time in my life I realized that he had forgiven me of my sins. For 17 years I've been carrying guilt, thinking I was so bad uh, that my addiction to pornography and lots of other things had kept me from Jesus, that I didn't really think I was saved. I thought for 17 years of my Christian life that I was still lost because I wasn't good enough. Now, seeing something like that in your mind's eye is not proof that God has accepted you. But when our professor, our teacher, told us to turn to 1 John and read the passage that says, by this we know love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. And he said, now go back and read it again and where it says us and we. Put your name in there. And I did. By this, Mark Barrier knows love. Not that Mark Barrier loved him, but that he loved Mark Barrier and gave himself for Mark Barrier. And when when I read that, after seeing this, whatever it is that I saw in my mind, it was like the universe just shifted for me. Everything changed. I'd heard before about people having quantum leaps in their faith. I've had five in my life. The last one was when I, for the first time in my life, came to understand the Hebrew language from the inside. Uh, I'd been studying it and teaching it for years and years. And then one day I was taught by a a man who studied to be a rabbi who was working as a Christian now. And he had showed me some things, and all of a sudden it it just opened up, and the universe shifted again. Most of the Christian life is a long plateau. Have you noticed that? Most of it is a long obedience in the same direction. But if you've experienced a quantum leap, like I'm talking about, you know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. And one of the major things that happened to me at that point was I came into the living room where the Holy Spirit was living. And I realized that the Holy Spirit, all this time had been in me, And this is one of the things we're going to be looking at tonight of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in Ephesians is an incredible study. And I realized at that time, almost 38 years old, that the Holy Spirit lived in me. And then I started studying scriptures about it. And I found John 14, 23, where Jesus says, If you obey my word to love one another, to believe in me, If you obey my word, my Father and I will come and make our home in you. That word home there is the same word where Jesus said, I go to prepare a home for you. So while he's preparing a home for us, he is at home in us. And the amazing thing is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who live within us. Now I wonder how Mary felt when she found out that the Son of God was going to live inside her. You know, what does God want in a person who has the Son of God living in that person? What does the Holy Spirit really mean to us? You know, we have a, all of us have a doctrine. We know some of the teaching about the Holy Spirit. But most of us don't really grasp what's going on in here. When you became a believer in Jesus and when you were baptized, the scripture says that two things are proof that you have the Holy Spirit. Number one, you believe in Jesus. And number two, you've been baptized. The scripture says you believe into Jesus. Remember, we talked about this last night. You believe into Jesus, that is, when you believe... You enter his body on the cross. We talked about this in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And then you were brought down out of, off the cross with Jesus. And you were buried with Jesus. And baptism means all this, that you died with him, you were buried with him, and you were raised with him. And Ephesians 2, 4-6 through six says, God made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. The Holy Spirit in us is God's representative living in us, never forcing us to do anything. This blew me away when I first discovered that when the Holy Spirit comes into us, He comes in like a baby. You know, I was 20 years old. I was used to filling the needs of the 20-year-old man, feeding the 20-year-old man. But when Jesus comes in, you have to stop feeding the old and start feeding the new. And that was very difficult for me. I'm very stubborn. God uh, God had to work with me a long time to to bring me out of that stuff. In fact, I, I mentioned pornography earlier. I probably have mentioned it before to you. Uh, Whenever I teach the book of Romans, I get to the first chapter. I always tell my students about my problem with pornography because students have a problem with pornography. People in the church have a problem with pornography, mainly young guys. Uh, I've I've seen marriages break up from pornography. I had a minister call me, an older man, who said that his son-in-law, who had married his daughter, had five children through the daughter. That his daughter had gonorrhea. And they found out that she had gotten it from her husband who had gotten it from a prostitute. This guy was deep into the porn scene, so deep that he went with a prostitute. And what once? Can you imagine being a, a Christian wife and having gonorrhea because of your husband, who's been unfaithful? And I talked to the husband. Several times. He was a Church of Christ minister. His father was a Church of Christ minister. And he ended up, you know, I tried to help him, but he ended up leaving his family. Leaving his wife. Devastating the family. And going down to the areas where they lived in this stuff. And he's not the only one. We had a youth minister at Valley View Christian Church who went through the exact same thing. He was having sex with the girls in the youth group. Imagine that. And he was, a, he was deep into it. The thing about this world is everything gets its hooks in you, and then after a while, there's really no joy in it. Those of you who struggle with alcohol know one or two beers might have done it for you one time back there. But after a while it takes more and then it takes more and it takes something stronger and then you go to something stronger. Sin is always a dead end and it always gets worse. The Holy Spirit comes into us and amazingly submits to us. God living in us Submitting to our decisions. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4. In the context around verse 30 and says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, somebody asked Carl Ketcherside years ago uh, at a North American Christian convention. Uh, Carl, if... Uh, If a Christian sins, does that mean the Holy Spirit leaves us and then comes back into us when we repent? And Carl's answer was a classic. He said, in most of us, the Holy Spirit be worn out, leaving and coming back, leaving and coming back. No, the Holy Spirit doesn't (laughs) leave you when you sin. The Holy Spirit is grieved when you sin. But He stays with you. He lets you make the decisions. But He always tells you what's right. But he didn't make the decisions for you. There is one member of the Trinity who is, who is shy. And that's the Holy Spirit. He's quiet. The scripture says, Jesus says this in John 14 and 16, that the Holy Spirit never speaks on his own. But he only takes what, what is mine and shows it to you. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring Jesus to us, to teach us about Jesus, not about himself. Churches that emphasize the Holy Spirit have missed the point of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who needs to be emphasized. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us Jesus, who teaches us Jesus. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18 here, I I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened so that you may know God better. That's really what the, the Holy Spirit is here for, to open our eyes so we can know him better. I want to look at just some of the things that are said here about God, the Father. Now, this is not the Son's work. It's not the Spirit's. But starting in verse, uh, verse 3 and going down to, through verse 10 is the work of the Father. Look at what he says. I want you to look at some of these words. We read a few of them last night talked about them. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. He chose us to be holy and blameless. That's why we've been chosen. To be like Him. God did this. This is a doctrine of election. The Greek word here is eklektos. God chose us. He picked us out before the foundation of the world. Now we can talk about that, but I told you last night I don't understand that. I just believe it. Because he knew me and he knew you. You know, He comes to Jeremiah and said, Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. How could, how could that be? He knows our whole lives. He knows every day of it. Psalm 139 says, All the days that I have in this world are already written for me. God has total knowledge of us. He knows all of us. He knows things about us we don't know about ourselves. He penetrates us. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, Living is the word of God. And active, sharper knee, two-edged sword. Slicing down through joints and marrow. Separating between the soul and spirit. I don't even know what that means. And stretching uh, stripping us naked and splitting us open before the eyes of God to whom we must give an account. You know, the word of God is living inside us. This is the Holy Spirit's presence in us. Knowing us. Going through all of our parts. And knowing us better than we know ourselves. Why does God want to know us so much? Why does he want to totally know us? To totally forgive us. If he doesn't know all of it. He can't can't forgive all of it. But he does know all of it. And he's known since before the foundation of the world. So... The fact that he chose us, this is, this is a term that would be used when a, uh, a couple would go to an orphanage and pick out a child or go to a nursery and pick out a child that someone has abandoned. You know, God chose us like that and took us into his house. He even describes this back in Ezekiel. He said, when I found you out in the middle of a field, you were a baby kicking about in your own blood. And I took you home and cleaned you up and fed you and so on. God is the one who chooses us, even though he sees the ugliness of what he chooses. So he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. I want us to just look at some of these words. Predestined. This is a Greek word, prohorizo. I ought to write it up here. Got something here to write with. See if you can pick out the English word. You see it? It's like God establishes our horizons beforehand. Solomon saw this. He said there's time to be born and a time to die. This is our horizons. God established this beforehand. I didn't choose to be born uh, May 11th, 1941. My parents didn't even choose for me to be born that day. That happened to be Mother's Day and my folks' 12th anniversary. It was the only Mother's Day present that my mom couldn't take back. Uh, You know, uh, I didn't have that choice. This is when I came into the world. Each person here uniquely had your horizon set up beforehand by God. You were born when God chose you to be born. You are God's gift to you. And everything in between these two dates... You know, I don't know when my death date is. I've got an uncle. I told you it lived to be 106. Uh, if, I, if I can be like him, I will be. He was healthy up to the day he died, able to take care of himself. Uh, if I can make it, I'll make it. But whenever God has it set up, he knows. I don't know. You know, it's kind of like when Jesus says talking about the second coming he says but of that day or hour no one knows neither the angels of heaven nor even the son but only the father there are certain things only the father knows and jesus that's the only place i know of in scripture where he admits ignorance god hadn't told him yet when he's coming back god hadn't told me when this is going to happen but i know it's going to happen unless he comes first and takes me out of here but the, the incredible thing is this word predestination means that God has established the pattern beforehand and we come into the machine here and we leave the machine here. The machine is the universe, the matrix. You know, maybe you saw that first movie with Keanu Reeves. It's, it's a movie that's been theologically examined by the scholars because it's heavy-duty theology. If you haven't seen it, go see it interesting some of it's not that good but there are parts of it that are very insightful talk about the human condition we are put in a machine the universe is a big machine and our bodies have these little teeny machines in them just like the universe they're called atoms and they're in constant motion you know we're just another machine within the machine now we aren't The the ancient priests talked about the ghost inside the machine. That's who we are. We're the spirit that lives within here. And Paul says in, in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit with our spirit bears witness that we are God's children. That's two witnesses. That means it's a fact. You know, Old Testament scholars tell us that you can put somebody to death in the Old Testament at the word of two witnesses. So we got two witnesses telling us that we're God's kids. Our spirit tells us. We know inside that we believe. And then the Holy Spirit also tells us. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. And so here we are, people who have been chosen and predestined. And we're predestined for what? To be adopted as his sons. I love this because ladies... This takes away the separation between men and women. You know, Paul is is often attacked by people for, you know, people think that he puts down women. But in Galatians 3, Paul says there's no such thing as male or female. In Galatians 3, he says we're all sons of God through faith in Christ. He says the same thing here. Adoption as sons because God predestined it so. Now we talk about the Jewish attitude toward women. The Orthodox Jewish prayer, the the Hasidic Jews pray to this day. Thank you, O God, that I was not created a dog or a woman. Dog means Gentile. You know, it's a put down. It's It's a terrible attitude toward women. But in the Scripture, everything changes with Jesus. In the Old Testament, Only men could be circumcised. Women were automatically second class. But in the New Testament, men and women can be baptized. So there is no hierarchy. There's equality under grace. Now we can talk about the marriage distinction and the the mutual submission that goes on in marriage. You guys know about that. It's not all one way in marriage. It was never meant to be. But when you come to a disagreement, C.S. Lewis is right. He said every marriage would last up until the final disagreement. And then the marriage would disintegrate if somebody didn't submit to the other. And go back and look at Genesis. You'll see the man was here first. So he has seniority. So ladies... You know, submit submit to your husband, as to the Lord. Paul says, because this is God's plan for you. You know, it's not a Jewish attitude; it's God's plan. And uh, there have been times when my wife has submitted, and I've made some really stupid mistakes. I could I could tell you right now one that I made. I won't do it, but it was a, it was stupid. It was an investment. She said, I don't trust him. And I said, well, he's a Christian. How could you not trust him? And I invested with this, And a bunch of other people did, a bunch of my friends. And back then, 14 bucks a month was big bucks back in 1960s. And uh, that's what I was putting in, 14 bucks a month. Did it for a year. And the first claim was made on the insurance. The guy was gone took that money and my wife came in and said boy we really made a mistake there she should have said boy you really made a mistake there and she said we we you know i should have listened to her there are times when well you can look at it yourself ephesians 4 submitting to one another out of reverence to christ and then he says wives to husbands as to the lord the command is not submit in that passage. We're going to look at that in a little bit. The command is be filled with the Spirit. And then there's some things you, you do if you're filled with the Spirit. We'll look at that. But let's go back to chapter 1. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's taking us into his family to learn to be like his son in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely has given to us in the one he loves he's given us this grace that we should be in god's family in him remember i told you if you go through this book and underline all the in Hims," in christ in the beloved in the one he loves you'll underline over 20 times in him we have redemption through his blood what's redemption we read these words all the time Did you know this was a slave market analogy? That redemption took place in the slave market. Slaves were put up on a pedestal, and the masters would come in and look at the slave. They would usually strip the slave, humiliate the slave, look in his mouth like you would in a horse's mouth, look at his muscles. Or whatever the slave was like. And then they would bid on the slave. That, that's the word here. The word redemption means to bid on a slave. And to buy him. And to set him free. And that's what God did for us. In Christ, he bid on us. And he paid the price which was the highest ever paid. The death of his son. Anytime you think you're worthless. Just go study Calvary. Just go to the cross and take a look and see what Jesus really went through there. You know, here it is. In him we have redemption through his blood. His blood paid the price for our sin. In other words, his death. The redemption is the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. It's God, the Father, who's doing all this. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their full fullness, Fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, which is Christ. I, I thought about teaching you one Greek word tonight. It's the Greek word anakephaliosasthi. That's it. Ready? Anakepaliosasthai. It's eight syllables. Now I know some bigger words in English, but an eight syllable word, you know what it means? To sum up. (laughs) It's God's plan in the fullness of time to sum up all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the word. To sum up. To head up. Let Christ be up here and everything be beneath him. That's God's plan. That's the Father's plan. And then he says... And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, here it is, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Okay, we, that is, the Jews. He's talking about the Jews there in that whole verse. The Jews are the ones that God chose. Uh, there's a book out, came out years ago. I've seen one copy of it. It's called How Odd of God to Choose the Jews. Well, it is. It's very strange. You'd think he would go choose the Chinese because you'd have, what, 1.2 billion today. Or he would choose, you know, instead he chose one guy Abraham, who worshiped the moon. Abraham, the idolater. Later in his life, he destroyed the idols of his family. But when God first chose him, Abraham was an idolater. And idolatry stayed in his family for hundreds and hundreds of years. All you got to do is read the story. Read the book of Genesis. Rachel steals the teraphim, the household gods, These were ancestor-worship gods. Remember, these were Oriental people. These were Eastern peoples. Abraham came from all the way over into what is now called Iraq. Back then, it was called Babylonia. And he came from Ur of the Chaldees and moved up the Mesopotamian Valley. You know, here's a guy that was worshiping idols when God called him. I think Abraham became what is known as a henotheist, that is, that he believed there was one God above all the other gods. But I don't see any evidence that he ever thought that God was the only one. I think maybe in the Bible the first monotheist was Moses. Probably. But even his family kept idols in their household. Why would God choose somebody like that? Why would God choose you and me? You can't analyze that. You can't say, you can't ask the question why when it comes to God. He did it because he did it. Because he's God. Now look at this next section. We, he says, were included in Christ. And now he says, you also, he's talking about the Gentiles, were included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now remember, we're going to have a Q&A time at the end of this. And if something comes up in your mind that you want to ask at the end, please put it down on paper because otherwise you won't remember Probably, if you're like me, uh, you won't remember what it was. See, I wanted to ask you something, but I can't remember what it is. Well, look how, how we were included in Christ. I want you to look at this passage very carefully. There are three things that happened here that included us in Christ. What are they? What's the first thing? You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You heard it. That's active. That's on your part. You chose to listen. I was telling uh, Harold earlier today that the students that I have in my classes today are dumber than any other students I've had in the last 41 years teaching. Why? Because they're entitled, everything's given to them, and because they get all their learning from a screen about the size of your hand. And it's all nuts. It's all empty. There's almost no reality in what they're learning. I'm not saying all my students are dumb, but I'd say 80%. It's very sad. They have never learned to listen in class and take notes. Some of them will sit in class with a computer. They did a study at Gordon-Conwell and at Harvard on using computers in class for freshmen and sophomores. And they discovered that the, the, the student will hear the words, type them in the computer, and then not remember a word that's said, and they tested people who took hand notes, listening in class, and others who just typed whatever the professor said, and they told them there would be a test, and they studied for the test, and the people who took handwritten notes far exceeded the grades of the people who used a computer in class. Now, I know that there are some valid uses for computers but to constantly be fed visual images when the biblical view, both Judaism and the New Testament, is listening, hearing. Hear, O Israel, Moses says, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Listen to that. And then the New Testament how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing. and Hearing the word of God. It's all about hearing. And I think some of our churches have stopped listening. I know the young people have. And that's a tragedy. Because they're not getting it. They're not learning. My, I was devastated this year. My grades were lower than I gave my students this year than they've ever been. And I would give them tests on Bible, and they would make lower grades than any year in the past. And I don't know what the cure for it is. God help us if we lose the ability to hear. Have you ever noticed that you can watch something on TV, or you can watch a movie, and a year or two later you can go back and rewatch it, and it's like a new experience? Because watching doesn't do it. Watching doesn't take any effort of the will. You can go sit in front of the TV and watch a ball game. It doesn't do a thing. Totally different from listening. Because when you listen, it takes an effort of the will. And listening is hard. Seeing is easy. And that's why he says, You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. What's the next thing? You believed it. That's something you do. You hear it, you believe it. Something happens in your heart, and you know that it's true, and you believe it. And then look at the next one. Do you notice in the English translations how the voice changes from active to passive? You heard, that's active. You believed, that's active. You were sealed. That's passive. You don't do that. You know the word baptism in scripture appears only in two places in the active voice. Every place else is passive. When you start with the book of Acts and study the word baptism all the way through. People are baptized. People don't baptize. You follow? Passive voice means it's done to you. And that's what this is about. All the early fathers who wrote about this verse where it says, you heard it, you believed it, you were sealed, talk about the immersion act, sealing the person beneath the water, symbolic of a person being sealed in Christ. Now this is a mark of ownership and a mark of protection. The word seal... You know, anything sealed by man is not secure. Um, The Romans, when they put Jesus in the tomb, Matthew says, they put the Roman seal over that big rock that they rolled in front of the tomb. And if anybody came and, and tried to move that rock, all the legions of Rome could be brought against him. Sealed by man. But that seal didn't stand, did it? Sunday morning early, an angel with a face like lightning came down and rolled that stone away. Not to let Jesus out, but to show the world that he was already gone. He had already risen. He would already come out of the tomb. What's sealed by man is not secure. But we have been sealed by God. Did you see that in here? We have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is a what? What's the next verse say? Is a guarantee of our inheritance. Do you know that you're going to heaven? You've got a guarantee. can you, know, you don't deserve it, but you're going. I look forward to seeing you there. Hope it's more often than we've seen each other lately. You know, we don't deserve to go to heaven. We don't deserve, but it's guaranteed. The Holy Spirit guarantees us. You've been sealed. Go to Revelation. Look at the word seal. How many times is it used there? A bunch. You remember the people who had the seal on their forehead? Revelation chapter 7 is the first mention of the 144,000 with a seal on the forehead. How do they get a seal on their forehead? You ever notice how somebody's baptized? The last thing to go underwater. Right there. They're sealed. In the act of baptism, all the early fathers that write about this passage say it's talking about baptism. Baptism is something done to you. You were sealed. You were baptized. It's not something you do. You heard it. You believed it. But you were sealed. This is the first work of the Holy Spirit right here. That word uh, translate guarantee it's it's not even a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. It's the word babion. And in Aramaic, it means an engagement ring. If you've been sealed, you are engaged to Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who engages you to Christ. So we have a guarantee and we have an engagement. But the word also means a down payment. My wife and I, uh, years ago, 1972, March of 1972, borrowed $1,000 and put $1,000 down on a house in Dallas. And the payments were $147 a month. We didn't know how we were going to make it. And we did struggle making that payment. But we never once stopped making that payment. And as it went up over the years, and as the value of the house increased, We knew we were never going to stop making that payment. That's what the Holy Spirit comes in as. He comes in as a down payment. This is just the beginning. This is the first fruits of the Spirit. This is the first thing that happens in Scripture. The Spirit enters, seals us in Christ, and then we just explode with growth. And the Holy Spirit continues to increase in us. Jesus says, if you ask God to give you more of the Holy Spirit, He will. Ask Him. Luke's gospel he says pray that God will give you more of the Holy Spirit so this is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory now he already told us we have redemption but now he's telling us we're going to be redeemed With the price has been paid on Calvary but we're going to be redeemed at the end of the world Everybody here is going to go to meet him, to be with him forever. And if that's not the greatest promise in the Bible, the greatest hope that anybody in the world can have is to live forever with God. The early fathers called it the beatific vision where you see God face to face you know i've seen beautiful sunsets my wife and i sat up on the 17th floor of the radisson up in canada looking out over the entire niagara falls all of it the bridal veil the american falls the horseshoe falls all of it at once and i said to her if if god can make something this beautiful imagine what god must be like himself the source of all beauty Okay, he sealed us in Christ, and we are God's possession. We are owned by him. The Holy Spirit's a down payment, and he keeps making the payments as time goes on. I don't have time to finish everything I wanted to do, but I'm going to say one thing about the continuing work of the Spirit. If you go to the very last of the second chapter... Starting in verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, You are no longer foreigners or aliens. See, originally, we Gentiles were far off. We were far away. We weren't part of the kingdom of God. But chapter 2, verse 19, you're no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as as the chief cornerstone. This is a metaphor. This is not meant to be taken literally. We're not really rocks built into a rock building. But he's using this image to show us that Christ is the cornerstone. The whole building is grounded on him, based on him. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. All their teaching. And now we are a part of the building. Peter saw this. In 1 Peter. Peter himself, you know what the name Peter means, right? Rocky. It means a little rock, a pebble. And Peter says, We are all like little pebbles cemented in next to the great cornerstone. That's a humble way for him to say it. Here's the head apostle calling himself a little pebble cemented in next to Jesus. And all of us are, you know, this image is repeated in Scripture again and again that we build up a holy temple. How is it done? Keep reading. With Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, verse 21, in him the whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple. That's not the usual word for the temple. There are two Greek words for temple. This word means a sanctuary, a place where God lives in his spirit. Each of us individually, but all of us collectively, are the body of Christ, where God lives with his Spirit. And verse 22, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The Spirit's job is to unify all of us together in Christ. So two major things so far. The Holy Spirit seals us and guarantees us heaven. The Holy Spirit unifies us with all other Christians. That means, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's only the people who are here that are our brothers and sisters. Whenever I take communion, I think of people all around the world taking communion. I think of uh, people in Africa, people in China, people hidden in darkness in North Korea taking it quietly people all over the world taking the Lord's Supper and wherever God has a child I have a brother or sister and so do you and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us unified in Christ not because we go to the same church as everybody else they're all different churches but wherever God has a child you and I have a brother and sister one of the two unity brought by the Holy Spirit the last thing I want to say about the Holy Spirit I don't want to keep you much longer chapter 5 this is a passage I told you I memorized when I was tempted to get drunk 518 where Paul says don't be drunk with wine which leads to debauchery deep sin but be filled with the Spirit And then he lines up five things you do when you're filled with the Spirit. The command here, ladies and gentlemen, is to be filled with the Spirit. Now over in Colossians it says, be filled with the Word of God. Here it says, be filled with the Spirit, and you do five things when you are. Speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting. How do we know somebody's full of the Spirit? Because he's doing these five things: be filled with the Spirit. Five participles. For those of you who don't know grammar, you know know, think grammar married grandpa. Uh, You know, if you have trouble with grammar, just remember this: a participle is an ing word. It ends with ing, and so the command is be filled with the Spirit. That's a continuing commandment. Present tense. Keep on being filled. Speaking. You know, some churches, if we could get people to speak to each other, it would be an improvement. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. See, in other words, when you speak, let it be to build up your brother in the Scripture. Let it be to help the church. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing and making melody in the heart. I think that's a beautiful image. Singing there in the word psalo, from which we get the word psalm. You know, psalm in the Old Testament. The people of the early church sang the psalms to each other in antiphonal chorus. One side of the church would sing, the other side would sing it back like an echo. I'm sure to our ears it would sound like Oriental music, you know, uh, kind of a, you know, but that's that's Eastern. Do you know that they have an octave that they can hear 350 different notes? No wonder it sounds like that to us, because we can only hear 10 or 12 notes. Some of us who have really good ears can hear maybe 20 or 25 notes, but these people hear 350. <coughs> I can't imagine what it would have been like in the early church to listen to these people singing these songs back and forth to each other in other languages. I wonder, wonder if we could do that in our church. You know, we do it with row, row, row the boat, but I wonder if we could do it with real content, you know, real biblical songs. I memorized a Hebrew song one time to uh, the ninth psalm uh, in English. But it's a Hebrew melody. And it's a, an incredibly powerful, moving thing. And I wonder how it would be to hear the church sing antiphonal chorus back and forth in the psalms. Speaking, singing, and making melody in your heart, giving thanks Notice what he says giving thanks in everything to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. I wonder if we can really do that. Giving thanks, and then he says, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. The command be filled, speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting. That's what people do who are filled with the Spirit. They're naturally going to submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. And then he says, wives, to husbands as to the Lord. Ladies, there's no command in there for you to submit to your husband. Now, if you want a command, you can go over to 1 Peter and read your command. But here, the command is be filled with the Spirit. And then submitting is what people do who are filled with the Spirit. In a marriage relationship, uh, that's where the Holy Spirit is tested. I don't know if you're like me, but my wife and I, we got married. She's Italian. Uh, her dad's name is Enrico Ernesto Pietro Nardoni. And that's a spicy meatball. Uh, <laughs> He's 88 years old, uh, he's been living with us, this is the first uh, few days that we've had where he is in another place uh, where he's really enjoying himself, I think he's tired of being with us too, so, uh, <coughs> but uh, wonderful guy. But all this Italian background in her, and so she grew up with mom running the house. Mom runs pretty much everything, and her mom and I met each other. and. She wrote a letter to Paula saying, can't you find somebody else? (laughs) She really did. Isn't that true? (laughs) But But we, we had a little personality conflict. And then when Paul and I got married, it was the same thing for six months. You know, we had broken up umpteen times leading up to our marriage And then we just got mad at each other and and argued and fought. And we had six months of hell. You know, don't get married quick. Think about it a while. Uh, But we had a great great fight after six months. And, uh, I mean, it was, and we ended up, both of us, breaking down and crying and crying out to God and saying our marriage is a sham and we need your help. It's not working. And God came into our marriage, and here we are, almost 46 years later. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, our marriage is better than it's ever been. If you've been married a long time, you know that your marriage can be better every year than it was the year before. I'm so thankful for my wife, and she learned to submit. But she. But wait now, it, it's a learning. Yeah, it's a learning thing, and she let me make my mistakes, and now, you know, I listen to her much more than I used to. It's it's more of a mutual submission. Now, I think that's God's plan for us, mutual submission. Yeah, you made a mistake or two. One of them was, yeah, I know that. But what I want to suggest to you, folks, I've got about one more verse I'm going to look at, but I I want to suggest to you that you fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit, and the way you do that is by filling yourself with the Word. Spend time. this This is God's thoughts here. And if you get God's thoughts in your head, you can think God's thoughts after him. And when you fill yourself with the Word, you are filling yourself with the Holy Spirit. And my advice to you, if I'm going to give advice, some of you may even be older than I am. Please fill yourself up with the Word so the Holy Spirit can come in and live with you and make you full of Him so you can do these things that Paul lists here. So you can submit to one another. So you can sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. You know, so you can be excited and, you know, if we really do live in the heavenly places the way I talked about last night, that's beyond the the lives of most Christians. Most Christians go around defeated. But we live up on a higher plane. And we have somebody living in us that's from up there. And he can transform us to become like the Son of God. And that's what our aim is, to be like Jesus. Isn't it? Isn't that what you want? You know, I can't believe how many people come out on a Sunday night or a Monday night because you love the Word and because you love the Lord. And it's exciting to see the potential here. Uh, You know, your preacher's been with you for 18 years almost. Now, that's wonderful. And when you stay 18 years in the same place as a preacher, you don't, you don't deal with the people anymore. You're dealing with yourself. You're making yourself grow. You're coming into a relationship with God that is totally dependent on God because people can't do it by themselves. Ministry is a tough bag. I'm back in it again in Sherman, Texas. I'm still teaching, you know, 40th year. That was enough. And, uh, but I'm still teaching one day a week back in Dallas but I'm loving working with the people in that church. And it's an incredible thing. I know I'm going to have to deal with myself again in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to help me through all that. One more verse, and I'll quit. The section about the armor, and we'll be coming back to that. Uh, When he talks about, at the end here, Down in verse 16, he says, Take up the shield of the faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. There are two Greek words for sword. The word that's used here is a word for a dagger. A very short, double-sided sword. And the word for word here, you've probably heard the word logos. That's not the word here. The word here is crema. Crema means the spoken word of God. See, if you're filled with the Spirit and you have the word of God living in you, then when, te- when you're tempted by the devil and you take your stand against him, the only offensive weapon we have is the spoken word. How did Jesus respond to Satan's temptation? The spoken word. You have to memorize it to be able to do that. I told you that the Jews memorized all the Torah. Jesus is just picking passages out of Deuteronomy to reply to Satan. We've got a lot more scripture to memorize than even the Jews had. We've got a lot to learn. And I hope that the Holy Spirit will penetrate us enough and change us enough to make us choose to be filled with the Word and to respond to Satan's temptation with the spoken Word. I promise you, if you have a temptation and you find a scripture that deals with that temptation, and you... Let me say it this way. Martin Luther said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head but you can stop a bird from building a nest in your hair he's talking about our thoughts he says you can't stop a thought from going through but you can stop it from staying in there how do you stop a temptation from staying in your mind thinking about it no shift your focus and think about the word and if you have a passage of scripture memorized about your temptation whatever it is Whatever your temptation is, I know everybody in this room is tempted somewhere. Probably several places. Whatever your temptation is, find a scripture that deals specifically with that temptation. When I was tempted to drink, I would memorize and I told you, Ephesians 5:18 and following, don't be drunk with wine which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Memorize scripture. And focus on that, and the temptation will flee. The Word of God drives Satan away. Scripture teaches us. Okay. I'm done. I want to see what questions you have, if any. I know I covered it so completely that everybody (laughs) has all your questions answered. Yes? Yes, Yes, that's what John 14 through 16 says. Uh, she just said that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is here to testify to Jesus, and Jesus came to testify to God the Father. and That's exactly right. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will never speak on his own. He will just take what is mine and reveal it to you, Jesus said. So yes, the Spirit's job is to teach us Jesus, and Jesus' job is to teach us the Father. I, I can't do How did, the deaf hear the word? How did the deaf hear the word? Well, they don't hear it by their ears. They hear it by another way. This is you know this is uh, why Braille was invented. I've not really read much about that, but uh, you, every elevator you get in is going to have the braille for the, for the numbers. Um, they can read it, and it's just like hearing it for them. And I don't know if you've been reading about some of the operations that have been done in people who have been born deaf and have had operation done and they can hear for the first time. I had a student who heard out of only one ear and that just partial hearing, and she went through an operation. She has better hearing now in the other ear than she had ever had in this ear. Um, It's happening all the time, but the deaf... If I had a choice between being blind or deaf, I would choose blind. You know, much as I'd hate to be blind. The reason I say that is I could do what I can do now if I were deaf. I can teach. You know, I can help people. But if I were, if I were deaf, how could I, how could I re- respond to a question? If somebody had a problem, how could I deal with it? I guess, and see there, you're hearing again. That's it. You're hearing, you're hearing through sign language. That's right. Good question. Yes Uh-huh Well, there again, the Proho Regio, to set up the horizons beforehand. God has done this already. Uh, For him, see, we use words like foreknowledge, predestination. You know, words like for and pre and pro, words like that are for English to help us with our little minds to get a hold of what's happening here. For God, it's not really predestination at all. For God, it's total knowledge. He's already been through the whole universe from beginning to end. If all time were a wire stretched from up there to back there, if all time were that, God would have infinite number of places to look at that wire from, to analyze it. He could come back to it any time. He is absolutely unlimited. You know, you heard me say, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? You know, God has thought of all thoughts. He, he knows all things from beginning to end. He is Alpha and Omega. He is before the first and after the last. He's at the end. So he, for him, it's not pre-destination or foreknowledge. For him, it's total destination, total knowledge from his perspective. We don't know the mind of God. We, we can't understand that. In fact, C.S. Lewis says our highest thoughts about God are sheer idolatry compared to how great God actually is.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, I think Speak up a little. Yeah. what you're saying is he's already The same with
0: predestination.
1: Uh, yes. He's already planned that Geneva is gonna live just sixty years, you know, that well I'm already past that, but pretend <laughs> nobody knows you know, but in other words, she will die and, and I don't see it like God's causing me to die that day, and that's the way I choose to believe it. But that he knows exactly yeah. when I'm gonna die. Yeah. You know, God doesn't
0: He doesn't make this stuff happen. But he knows it's going to happen. And there are senses in which he has planned it out ahead of time. You look at the life of Jesus. You read John's gospel. And all the way through John's gospel, Jesus is in charge. He says, no one's taken my life from me. I choose to lay my life down. If I lay it down, I'll take it up again. You know, he's in charge in every situation he goes into. He knows what's going to happen. Well, that's the same way it is with God. What we call predestination, God would say, this is my, this is the end product. Let me, let me say it this way. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. Uh, everybody knows Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But 29 says, those God foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And then listen to this next one. And those he justified, he glorified. That's past tense. See, from God's perspective, he's already seized us as glorified. It's already done. The whole process is completed. But from our little minds, we seem to be in the present all the time, slowly moving out of the past and into the future. But God doesn't move through time. He is every when. And he is everywhere. And he doesn't ever learn anything. I used to think it must be boring to be God. But I don't think it is at all. (laughs) He's got some really unpredictable creatures to keep a hold of. I hope I answered some of what you had. And I think you're right, Uh, Geneva. I think when you talk about a time to be born, a time to die, Solomon saw that. And he knew that, you know, your days are numbered. Psalm 139 says, every day God has already written down for me, my days are numbered. But we don't know when the number is. We don't know when our number's up, as the saying goes. Yes, ma'am. That's right. Yeah, and suicide, you know, when somebody commits suicide, it's not God's choice for them. Um, There's a sense in which the will of God can be thwarted, you know, in Scripture. uh, but, But suicide, even it, is not the unforgivable sin. You know, there were several people that committed suicide in Scripture. I had a guy in the church I served in Dallas that committed suicide, and I... That Sunday when they called me, the sheriff called me and said, uh, so-and-so had committed suicide, and we found your name and number. And uh, when I found out about it, I knew that he had been depressed deeply for many, many years. Uh, he struggled through so much. And uh, so that Sunday I spoke on suicides in the Bible. You know, one guy is serving God when he commits suicide. Huh? Samson. Remember when he pushed down the temple, he said to God, let me die with the Philistines. Jesus, in a sense, did, didn't he? I lay my life down. No one takes my life from me. Don't you think he could have put a stop to it? But he chose to do it. And so... Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. We could talk about that another time, but yeah, that is something that God knows what's in the heart of the person who does these things, but we sure don't. I
2: want to make a comment to young men.
0: Young men, okay. Our husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church and be himself up for her?
1: Yeah.
2: right and if you
0: think about her of can I can I face your thought else,
2: your life is going to be a lot richer estimate, don't we? You that, now scripture
0: even teaches it 1 Corinthians 7 says that the that the husband's job is to please his wife I mean this is what we're supposed to do Yeah. Some somebody needs to tell the young
2: ones think about other people, other things out that. even your job. Think about your your family, your wife, because
0: kids. They keep a lot of problems to handle. Yep. Ken
2: A lot closer than you're down here trying to figure out who's going to obey and who's
0: going to submit. Yeah, that's right. I I think that if we focus on being close to Christ, we're automatically going to be pleasing our wife or husband because we'll be closer to them. Uh, Thank you. And, uh, Paula, you're you're right, of course. You know, I didn't mention the fact that the next command after be filled with the Spirit is to the husband's. To love your wife. It's interesting, isn't it, that men have to be commanded to love their wives? Remember what the definition of love is I gave you last night? Helping others. Getting off the couch and helping your wife. Whatever it takes. I'm sorry if your toes are hurting. But guys, where is it written that the women prepare the meal... The men come in and sit and then go into the den and have cigars and brandy while the women clean up all the mess. Where is that written? That's Cajun culture. culture. (laughs) Well, that's American culture. I mean, that's what what we do, and that's not what God's plan is. God's plan is that we love our wives. You know, wives automatically love their husbands. There's no place in Scripture where Paul commands or anybody commands women to love their husbands. In Titus, Paul commands the women to like their husbands.
2: <laughs> you might have
0: to sit down on the couch and watch a few plays of football. You know, learn to like your husband. The word there is philia rather than agape. Learn to be friends with your husband. We've got one more thing and then we'll we'll stop. Yes.
2: that's
0: right but we have it we can choose to like somebody too and the way you do that is learning to spend time with them and become interested in the things they're interested in uh, my wife and I read a book by Gary Smalley that told us this and uh, it changed our marriage after I don't know how many years of, 25 years of marriage it changed our marriage because she became interested in some of the things I do. I'm interested in, and I became interested in some of the things she's involved in, okay. except for shopping. I'm not into that. <laughs> okay, let's pray.